Okay, so we're guessing the frog call here. Guessing the frog call, yeah. I mean, I'm not. It sounds like somebody dropping like a little metal ball. Yes, I know what you're getting at. It's got a metallic-iness to it, and it's got a somewhat unnatural feel to it. It's it's almost insect-like. Not that insects are unnatural, it's just insects don't cool from their mouths like a frog. Therefore different. Yeah. Yeah, this is a strange one, actually. I'm guessing that it's going to be something from South America, because oh, that's yes. where we're going for the episode. Oh, yeah, that was pure chance, but yes. South American reed frog. It's not South American. No, no, no. Follow through with a particularly disturbing... Think of the most unsettling way of rearing its young. An unsettling way of rearing its young. This is a yeah. riddle now. Yeah. Unsettling. The only thing that I can think of which is unsettling that amphibians do is those Sicilians where the, the mother feeds the babies with their own... Sort of that is relatively unsettling. Yes, the sort of pseudo cannibalismness. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, is it the one where the female has like the little pockets in her back? Hey, we're getting yeah. close. Oh, that looks disgusting. You know those people who have phobias of Swiss cheese hate it. <laughs> What's Living that called? Cheese, Tri- yeah, I mean, it's- trichodecophobia or something like yeah. that. Yeah, where people can't deal with little holes in things. Yeah, one of my mates has it. And I showed him a stone on the beach and he was like nearly sick because it had a hole in it. I was like, mate, how do you even survive? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's got to be the little hole, holes in the back rearing mother frog. Yes, there's multiple species of those. Is there? So I have no idea the classic, what any the of them The classic is Peeper Peeper, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, That's yeah. a classic. But this was a call from uh, Peeper Parva, which is, they're only little, two to sort of five centimetres little they're quite flat they're weirdly flat and they do the whole young'uns being uh being sort of implanted in the back business which is terribly bizarre and you're right south american up from sort of venezuela and uh northeast colombia yeah and they're called the common name is the sabana surinam toad right yes they look very aquatic they're very flat super flat aren't they they're lovely very curious. They've creature. got quite endearing little faces. Apparently they're elusive and exceptionally difficult to observe. Yeah. <laughs> Males defend underwater cooling sites. So that call could have been recorded underwater. That makes sense as to why it's so metallic-y. It probably, like, and sort through. of weird. Yeah, it's got a different feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah, I hadn't pegged that. I don't know if that call was recorded underwater or not. Yeah. Ooh. So, yeah. They sit in the mother's back so the mus- developing embryos exchange gas with the tissues of the mother that are really highly vascularized so they've got these like little highly well veined pockets in their backs where blood passes by and Keep the tadpoles safe. suck up all the oxygen yeah that is mad that is wild what a fascinating little creature with a bizarre i'm sound. glad it exists yeah parva what does parva mean we had parva uh, with something small, recently. wasn't it Oh, yeah, it's just little. Right, I think so, this yeah. is smaller than your regular peeper peeper. That's... Very good. Very good. Well, as we said... They don't have tongues. They don't have a tongue? Oh, <laughs> that's, <wow. laughs> that's, that's, that's my final fact. I guess if they're, in, if they're highly aquatic, they're probably like suction feeding and they maybe don't need the tongue. Because obviously the frog's tongue is like a highly developed organ that can shoot out and catch stuff. 
but mm-hmm. they potentially don't need that in the water. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Wonderful little weird creatures. As we said, we're in South America. We're in South America for another reason. We'll introduce our paper, which will form the main topic of the episode. So this one's by Padron, Mibert, Pereja Meja, Bauer, Fernandez, Vasconcelos, Correa, Fernandez, Guinea, and Sole, 2022, living in a mosaic of Brazilian Atlantic forest and plantations, spatial ecology of five Bushmasters, Lachesis Muta, published in Ethology, Ecology, and Evolution. So yeah, we're talking about the South American Bushmaster, Lachesis Muta. The biggest of the vipers, the longest of the vipers even. Maybe not big. I don't know, big is such a unuseful term. <laughs> longest of the vipers. <laughs> yeah. And the grandest. Maybe not the grandest, but it's blooming long. They can get up to 3.5, allegedly up to 4.5, but human They can get up to a... 6 metres, 7 metres, I tell you. <laughs> I once saw one the size of a house. I think we'll go with a more conservative estimate. <laughs> yeah, up to 3.5 metres, but yeah. And the ones they're looking at in this paper are like two and a bit. Sub two, yeah. two and a bit. But they are the second longest venomous snake after a little snake you might have heard of called the King Cobra. And the largest, longest venomous snake, longest venomous snake in the Americas. So yeah, they're no they're joke, the Bushmaster. They're big and they're really beautiful. They've got this contrasting sort of vivid orange rosy coloration with this pattern of black blotches down the back, highlights of white. So they very much look like leaf litter when they're curled on the floor, which is what they love doing because they're an ambush predator like most vipers. And uh, yeah, very hard to spot in this sort of leaf litter scattered with shady spots, understory vegetation. They're pit vipers. Massive heads. Massive heads and tiny little eyes. Their eyes are good. <laughs> they do have quite small eyes. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, they're pit vipers. For a viper. So yeah, they got the heat sensitive pits on the side of their faces, which helps them distinguish their nice warm, toasty prey from the background habitat. And these ones are actually unusual. The vast majority of vipers give birth to live young. The name Viper actually comes from their viviparis. If you sort of hold your lips together, viper. Viviparis sounds similar. And that's why vipers are called vipers in the first place, because they lay because the they don't lay eggs. They give Viper birth to live young. Live young bearing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I didn't actually find that out until like a month ago. But I was really pleased that, that I didn't find out about it until about five to ten seconds ago. So Well there you go. Yeah, there you it's go. It's fresh to me. But yeah, most vipers give birth to live young. They just give birth to ready-made vipers. These ones are kind of the exception. There are a few other exceptions, the aptly named Avophis from Southeast Asia and also what they called uh, Malayan pit vipers. They also yes. lay eggs. There's probably some others. But these guys There's always exceptions. lay eggs. There, there are always exceptions. And so, yeah, this is one. And the females, once they lay the eggs, they sit and guard them until they hatch. And this is a species which is distributed, as we said, South America. So we're in the Amazonian basin and the Guyana shield of South America. And then there's like a separate group of them in the Atlantic forest of northeastern Brazil. There's like an isolated pocket. And there was some genetic work done to see if that pocket was its own species. But no, no, they are the same. They're just Yes, some sort like, of back and sort of, forth. Right. Yeah. Or at least historically, there would have been back and forth. It's probably only since man. 
but they uh oh no i meant i meant back and forth in terms of thinking that they're species or not ah yes interesting name actually these things so lachesis lachesis is derived from the name of one of the three fates who are also known as the moirae or the incarnations of destiny in greek mythology and uh, lachesis was the moira that decided the length of time each human was allotted to live so pretty cool Hmm. and also gods they also decided how long gods were going to live and so yeah they named this species lachesis after this moira who decides how long things live probably to reflect the feeling of having one's life at the mercy of the snake upon finding them because they are venomous and they deliver a lot of venom and people do die from the bites and then the species bit so they're lachesis muta muta actually means silent and that i think is because they look like rattlesnakes but they don't rattle that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. They are close relative of rattlesnakes, of course. They're both pit vipers. Same family, same subfamily, but uh, you can call these them things don't Silent rattlesnakes. Rattle. You can, but or better to Bushmaster. Call them a Bushmaster. Bushmaster is one of the best common names out there. It's they are masters kind of outrageous. And like I said, they're venomous. So if you get bitten by one, it's really not good. The bites induce like nausea, vomiting, pain in the guts, you get diarrhea, you sweat, your blood pressure goes low, your heart rate slows down, you can go into shock. Local to the bite, you have necrosis, your flesh starts rotting. So yeah, they've got a real cocktail in their venom, uh, hemorrhagic effects, affecting the blood, affecting coagulation, neurotoxic activity, affecting your nerves. And um, depending on the source, I couldn't get a straight answer for this, which is so often the case with how many bites of fate anything to do with snake bite really it's hard to get good figures reporting's tricky yeah and, reporting's and tricky knowing end results are tricky and confirming which snake bit people is tricky every aspect of that data collection is difficult yeah but between one and 40 percent of people who get bitten end up dying which is vague but yeah that's a very big range yes but they are sometimes fatal the bites and partly that's just because these snakes are so big they mm-hmm. can develop, deliver a lot of venom Right, 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 right. Venom glands. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, we're in a bunch of sort of forest fragments. This isn't sort of the pristine forest you might imagine when thinking of a species like the Bushmaster. You know, historically, people have always said, oh, yeah, they're kind of confined to fragments of forest, which are still sort of perfectly intact. Where have I, but... where have I um, heard that, that before? Large venom species... It's meant to only live in forest. <laughs> and then doesn't. <laughs> Bums around in other places. Yeah. You're of course talking about the other big one, the King yeah, Cobra. Yeah, King Cobra, you've got that same sort of stuff. It's like traditionally considered a forest species, but when push comes to shove, you know, you find them in places that are not as forested as something you would define a forest. Yeah. So yeah, this study takes place in among sort of, there are some remaining forest fragments, but it's sort of a lot of it's been logged to varying degrees. And then you've got rubber plantations, but a lot of them haven't been intensively managed. So like rubber plantations can be just literally rows of trees with absolutely no understory, but they can also be sort of less intensively managed to sort of, I don't know if wildlife's necessarily the end goal a lot of the time. It's just sort of like people don't really feel like keeping the vegetation clear but it sounds like a lot of the plantations in this study have been allowed to sort of grow up there's like an understory and there's like right. almost sort of like hedgerows between so the can, rubber plantations you know it's a step towards um 
agroforestry, I suppose, would be the grouping it would fit under, where you're sort of of farming within a forest. It just happens to be that the forest, in this case, is what you're farming. Mm, you're tapping those rubber trees. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this was a radio tracking study. So best way of finding out what snakes do, stick a transmitter in them, track them down lots of times and see what they do, where they go. And they had five individuals in this study, which doesn't sound a lot and it isn't really. But I mean, finding snakes like this is really, really tricky. They're well, they extremely cryptic. They managed to find six. They did find six. But what one the transmitter behind? died too early. <laughs> Oh, that's painful. Yeah, which is, is again, it's another classic thing that happens with these studies. It's it's difficult because, I mean, you're putting a piece of sensitive electronics inside a snake. I mean, it's not exactly a friendly environment for any sort of electronics inside an animal. That's, that's you're asking quite a lot. It's... The other thing was, because these snakes are so hard to find, you know, they're not only are they hard to find as individuals, but also they're very, they're probably existing at low densities. You know, this is a large predator. There probably aren't that many of them out there. So yeah, they managed to, like you say, find six. They present the data from five and they weren't all native to the places they were tracking them. So I think it was, yeah, three out of the five snakes in this study were actually caught elsewhere. They were sort of like, I guess, nuisance snakes who like turned up in people's gardens and farms and whatever, and then were captured and then moved back to sort of better habitat and then released. So it's important to sort of take that into account when we're looking at what these snakes get up to, because, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast quite a few times they don't always behave exactly the same. If you catch an animal, move it out of its home range to a new home range, it's going to start behaving differently. It doesn't know where things are. It, you know, it's like anyone, if you move into a new place, you just don't know. You've got to get your bearings. It takes time. Yeah. And if you don't find suitable habitat, you could end up wandering around till you die. But um, yeah, these things actually seem remarkably well adapted to their new environments. Like they didn't have insane, massive ranges sort of they just seem to sort of get on with it that's the sort of impression is it's okay they've been trans did they say how far they had been translocated it was far it was way outside their home ranges i don't know how far but on the map it was like i'm pretty sure it was pretty far okay they 100 percent did not know where they were okay yep yeah but what i was going to touch on is number one is you've got these snakes in places that they need to be translocated from so Presumably that's not one bit of forest to another bit of forest. So you've already got your like, okay, they're not exclusive to forest stuff uh, being backed up there, which is a good sort of initial interest. You're seeing them sort of doing quite well. They all gained weight, which was a nice thing to see, I think, because one of the concerns, so we we often bring up sort of difficult to spot costs, animals sort of well-being in different scenarios being undermined by usually something anthropogenic progenic eating away at them there's always a concern when you're tracking animal like this where you've implanted something in it especially and you're following it around every what did they three times a week they were popping up and checking on these guys that's going to have some sort of cost to the animal and inevitably there'll be something some sort of cost but at least here with them all gaining weight and some of them quite a lot of weight it doesn't seem like either the translocation or the tracking dramatically impacted their body condition in terms of body mass which is nice. yeah which is really really encouraging actually it's great to see yeah and 
Yeah, one thing they did notice between the uh, sort of ones that had been moved, caught and moved, compared to the ones which were just left alone, is that the um, ones that had been moved tend to use more human-impacted habitats. So, like, mm. secondary regrown forests, rubber plantations, and, like, newly growing forests where it's been logged and is now, like, sudden sort of beginning to grow back. Whereas it seemed like the ones which were native to their areas seem to occupy more, like, primary it's not primary forest but it's sort of more akin to primary forest it's still like a more complete ecosystem but i think they could call like be... late secondary is what they were calling it i think right well they had late secondary and i think the primary like is like one step beyond that because they differentiate between those two. Oh, okay they had quite a few phases of forest in this um, <laughs> which That's you what, know it, it just seemed like each snake had a different sort of combination of habitats there wasn't anything that sort of unified them in any clear fashion other than these sort of broader groupings that you're describing here with the translocated ones tending towards more disturbed areas Hmm. but that also could just be because they caught the ones which were at home in the nice forest and that's where they live yeah they're already there they're not going to suddenly decide to just like if you're if you're a bushmaster who hatches out of an egg in some nice forest why would you leave well, so. maybe because there's other Bushmasters that are going to cause some trouble, but it does sort of remind me there's there's always an issue with any tracking study, well, almost any tracking study, because it's basically impossible to know what's going on with the animals that you're not tracking. So here we have a wonderful, wonderful insight into the lives of five individuals, but we have no idea what's going on with, with everybody around them. And so like this point of, okay, you've got your translocated individuals happening to use more sort of human disturbed areas or or sort of less pristine forest, less good forest, whatever the right word is. And it sort of leads you down. They sort of discuss in the paper that's okay. So maybe that's more because that's what they're used to from where they were translocated from. They were translocated from areas that they were causing problems coming into contact with people. So maybe they're more sort of in tune with using human landscapes, put them in a new place. That's what they're going to gravitate towards. But equally, it could be a sort of situation where, the density of Bushmasters in the better areas, in the forested areas, is at a certain limit that they're excluding these newly translocated individuals. But similarly, that could be complete nonsense. And there are plenty of Bushmasters in these reduced, more human-y forest areas. And these ones are just slotting in just fine. Oh, no problem. Yeah, it's a difficult one with sort of like, almost like territoriality type stuff. Because you don't know the others. You don't know the unmeasured snakes. And, you know, that's not a limitation of the, the study in terms of, oh, they should have done better. Not at all. But it is just something inherently limited with tracking studies. Or with lots of, all this wildlife animal science, it's so hard to get a handle on what you can't see. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Yeah, you can only focus on the ones you can see. Exactly, yeah. So what do they do? What does a Bushmaster's day look like? So contrary to what they're expecting, what are the things they're expecting because these are nocturnal animals, they're ambush predators, and they hunt during the night. So classic what they're viper. anticipating, classic viper. So, except for adders, which are diurnal. But it's really cold here, so. Oh, but they're true right. vipers. Sorry, pit viper, they right? Are. Pit viper. Pit, yeah. But not even because, like rat snakes, I think forage diurnal, don't, don't they? I don't know. I'm not sure. I think they're. I'm not sure. Oh, I've opened sort. a can of worms there, haven't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. who knows? But <laughs> what they were expecting was for them during the day to just hide out in burrows because, like, these animals, 
and this kind of plays into like what you said about king cobras you know like we have this idea of these species as like having these requirements based on where we see them most frequently and it's like not actually based on that much fact well they thought that these snakes are going to be hiding out in burrows all the time. And I think part of the reason for that is because there's a lot of like mythology to do with this snake. And one of the things mm-hmm. is that hunters who are hunting in the Amazon, when they used to like hit like a prey animal, like a, a medium sized miso mammal, perhaps, and they'd hit it with an arrow and then the animal would like disappear down a burrow. And then when they went to excavate the burrow to catch, to find their kill, they would discover a Bushmaster. So this led to this idea that animals in the forest could actually transform into Bushmasters. And that that was like a sort of like spiritual defense mechanism. Okay. And so, yeah, these authors, I mean, that's probably not exclusively why. They've probably been found in burrows quite a lot, but they were really expecting them to hang out in burrows. And it was really contrary what they found. They were generally just rested on the surface during the day and relying on their camouflage. So they would just sort of sit in amongst the leaf litter on the surface, completely still. That's how they spend their days. And then at night, they'd move to like a nice ambush position. Usually they'd set up close to where there was a mammal trail so they'd find somewhere that mammals were passing they'd sit and they'd wait and they'd watch and the main thing that the bushmasters seemed to be looking for when they were finding somewhere to sit and wait and look for mammals was that there wasn't too much vegetation lower than a meter so they liked sort Mm. of like slight open areas so that actually the mammals are likely to walk through and then they can their mammal track they've got their um sort of kill zone for lack of a better word that's clear yeah. and, and they're able to, well, I was going to say bite into, and I suppose that is the right way of saying that, but like <laughs> the bit of movement before the bite is what I'm getting at. You don't want that's a bunch right. of vegetation in the way, do you? You don't want to get caught nah, up on vines. And you know, these are big snakes. What do we say they could get to? Like three meters? Yeah, these, these guys snakes. are like just over two meters that they're tracking so so they could potentially be striking a meter so yeah they're gonna want like 50 centimeters clear yeah they did have a bit in the discussion somewhere saying that another paper finding that they tend to favor at least 20 to 40 centimeters to carry out an attack yeah yeah that was a hyman paper they were citing there for that so it makes sense that they've got this forward planning and they're setting up appropriately hmm one of the snakes got killed by people, didn't it, during the study? I think one of them got smashed up by some local people. But all the others survived, I believe. So, you know, yeah, I mean, that happens. Well, and also that's why they're being translocated, isn't it? Because if they're not, the other circumstance is potentially much worse for them. And certainly in this instance, the translocated individuals don't seem to be acting particularly weird. They do highlight one individual that did a very big move at the beginning but then sort of settled down into a range that appeared similar to the others. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they were all moved greater than 20 kilometers. So There we go, 20 kilometers. Yeah. I don't think there's a viper species that has a range that encompasses a 20 kilometer straight line distance. So yeah, they're going to No, be, but if there was, it would be, be a bushmaster. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be in a place they do not know. Yeah. Um yeah. I'm wondering about the burrow thing. That's playing on my mind. And I'm wondering whether it's a seasonality thing or something along those lines, something about sort of microhabitat temperatures or something along those lines. I mean, they did track these guys for quite a while, between two and eight months. So most of a year, but... It could also be that, you know, these things lay eggs, so maybe they're laying eggs in burrows and that's what the people were finding. Yeah, yeah. In mothers incubating their eggs. Yeah. Could be. 
could be. But yeah, I mean, I love to see stuff like this. It's so nice to have people taking the time and it is immense effort tracking snakes. And they were doing it in the forest. So yeah, I'm sure it's pretty taxing. But yeah, they've managed to do, you know, a pretty damn decent job of discovering a little bit about the spatial ecology of this big old Bushmaster species. And yeah, it's quite gratifying to see snakes which have been moved outside their habitat being moved to what seems to be reasonable habitat and continuing to thrive so yeah that's also really nice to see yeah, fingers, ordinarily... <laughs> fingers crossed they are thriving it's a, everything in the paper sort of suggests that they are doing just fine so yeah 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 so there we go bushmasters their spatial ecology ben have you got any other business for this episode i do have a slight bit of any other business so last episode last week we had our species as a bye week and we were sort of umming and erring around the naming of it because like, oh, we were whinging about the name like we, we were whinging do. a bit and that, yeah well everybody likes having a bit of a whinge every now and again and it's very easy for us to do whinging about things that we have no influence over and completely detached from so <laughs> with no repercussions there was a comment paper Comment paper out in some fancy nature journal. I don't know what journal this is. Nature, Ecology and Evolution. Called Eponyms Have No Place in 21st Century Biological Nomenclature. Led by Guedes? I guess you would pronounce that. I'm sorry. Eponym is the catch-all phrase for patronyms and matronyms. So these are names which come from people. They're names... Real or fictional people, yes. Yeah. Animals being named after people of some description. And this isn't the first paper. I don't. I think it's not even the first paper we've talked about on the podcast, which has brought up this sort of point that maybe it's about time we stop doing it. Basically, because inevitably there are sort of political and socioeconomic sort of issues with naming things after people, because people are not all perfect, to say the very least, and depending on the place and time that you are and that you're naming these species in comparison to where the species is and things along those lines, they can sort of perpetuate bad legacies or uh, legitimise things that shouldn't be legitimised later on. It's hard for them not to be a moving target, basically. There's nothing particularly... Naming them after people is sort of problematic. People are transient, aren't they? (laughs) In a lot of ways. Both who they they are, their names are what they stand for. Yeah. So it's all tied up in the idea of also trying to mitigate the nastiness of colonial legacies in places and uh, sort of addressing historic misbalances of power and potentially misuses of power and to try and make something more equitable at the end of the day. We obviously have issues with antonyms because we like things that describe the species. What did I say? Antonyms. Antonyms. What was I meant to say? Eponyms. Eponyms, yeah. Eponyms, because we like things that describe the species. We like a name which is useful. For, yeah, when you've got thousands of change, species, it's right? easier to remember. You've got a snake that's called, like, not calling anyone out in particular, it's just the first one that comes to mind. That species of water snake, which is like Merrill J. Coxi. It's, like, so hard to remember that because it's just abstract words. Yes. When you care about knowing what things are and using scientific names, it makes life really difficult. Right. So we come at it from a very practical point more than anything. And it's nice to think that you've got a name which 
is connected to a trait of the animal that shouldn't change, right? If the animal disappears, then the name disappears, or, or whatever. It's not... <laughs> They're nicely connected. It's not like you're going to lose the meaning of it as easily, because you should be able to see the animal and see where it comes from. They're getting at it from more of the anti-colonial angle, which I think is perfectly valid as well. And actually, this paper's generated quite a lot of pushback, because people don't like things being renamed. It's like, oh, God, yeah, it's, just, it's too much. It's too stressful. It's too it's too much effort. And in a lot of ways, yeah, it probably is a lot of effort to go back renaming things, because they are suggesting sort of fixing things that have already been named. And admittedly, that does sound like a massive task. It's also sort of draws into all these questions. Okay, so what is actually an acceptable name? We probably need to agree on that. Because we were umming and ahhing about the one in the previous episode. Because we're like, oh, it's named after a place. That's good. The place is named after a person. That's not as good. (laughs) So there does need to be some sort of agreement on what's acceptable and what's not. And that can be very difficult to come to and is going to very much be a judgment call at the end of the day. And then you're running into the same problems of a judgment call on what name isn't acceptable by today's standards so it's definitely logistical hurdles to fixing this and certainly going back and sort of fixing older names is going to be a challenge it's already difficult keeping up with names so taxonomy is already a tricky thing to keep a handle on especially so i'm working with some data that covers pretty much everything like everything we're dealing with something like twenty-four thousand species from Everything from bugs to reptiles to mammals to there's bloody viruses and protists in there. And it's a nightmare, absolute nightmare, to work out what species people were trying to refer to and matching up names and trying to build something that's coherent and consistent across 24,000 species from wildly different clades and groups. So it's already a nightmare. So I understand throwing something else into the mix and trying to fix things. Additional nightmare. So I'm not sure I'm... I would like to see stuff fixed, but it needs to be agreed upon what, what we're fixing it to. I think probably the easiest solution that probably shouldn't be that much of a problem is maybe stop doing it for new species. Maybe start the fix now. <laughs> maybe stop. It would make our work easier with species of bi week. We'd have a lot more species yeah, to pick from. <laughs> we veto so many species. We look at the paper and we're just like, what's it called? That sucks. Forget it. Like, you don't deserve the publicity. <laughs> See, but, but that's our preference. It doesn't... Yeah, that's just... Yeah, that's no, that's in, like, entirely a preference thing. Because it doesn't invalidate the work that's put into actually describing the species. And I'm sure many no, of these species of are very interesting to talk about. And we talk about it as if we're sort of like that sort of vociferously opposed but really it's just one of those things like i don't care like if right i know loads of people who've named species after people they're my friends like i'm not gonna be like oh you can't believe you did that like, it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah, exactly it doesn't matter that much it's just something which i would prefer was like not a thing yeah. yes i think that the most charitable sort of reading of this paper is that it's like all right come on guys it's time for we to keep shifting towards something better and perhaps more useful here rather than something which is still got a lot of baggage with it and connected to some pretty nasty legacies let's face it Mm. we can probably do better yeah it is fundamental to sort of the human existence though especially as you get start getting a bit older though you kind of feel like what's my legacy will the world remember me right and that's just ego isn't it it is ego but yeah i think animal names are a way in which you can kind of immortalize yourself to some extent but it's a bit unnecessary yeah yeah well it's trying to make something that's transient i.e 
human, less transient. But really, the irony is it's still more transient because you know, it's, it's, it's just a name. It's just a label, isn't it? And I think I certainly seen responses. There was this wild sort of some people were like, yeah, it's just labels. It doesn't really matter. Da, 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 da. It doesn't matter if it's political. It's just a label. It's like, mm, yeah, but, you know, words and stuff do have meaning. So it does come with other connotations. A lot of people being like, oh, it's a logistical nightmare. If you start unpicking it now, we'll have no names for anything. It's like, well, you could probably do it in a sensible way. And it's not like this isn't a problem that needs to be fixed in general in terms of making sure everything is nicely named and everybody knows its name and we all agree upon its name. But it's, <laughs> it is adding something else, adding us something else to fix. And I get that. But um, mm. I don't well, know. There we go. It's interesting. I recommend people take a look at it. It's quite an easy read. I don't think it's open access. But I requested it on ResearchGate and they got it to me, I think, within 15 minutes. <laughs> so that was yeah, super rapid. Big up to people who do that. Yeah. Hey, so uh, I've got four. one other piece of other business. Now we've covered the naming thing. I just wanted to talk about there was this little paper came out and it's a new behavior for snakes. So there's this little snake called a dwarf reed snake in Malaysia. The scientific name's uh, Pseudorabion longiceps. And this snake does a weird behavior when you startle it. Basically, they were like prodding it, see what would happen. I think the authors must have noticed it before. But the snake does this thing where it sort of like jumps in the air and does like a cartwheel so it can like roll away. I'm sorry. I, uh, video? Is there a video? No, I think there's pictures of the snake. I don't think there's a video. You can't publish something like that without a video. Tell the truth. I read about it in New Scientist, so I don't. I haven't actually read the paper. All I know is that it starts off, it contorts into an S-shape, sends itself into the air, and then it sort of, when it becomes entirely airborne, and then it sort of tucks under as it comes back down and coils into a circle and then like does a roll. And they say it can go like travel way further than an ordinary snake at ordinary speed. <laughs> this is incredible. Yeah. I found the pictures. Yes. That's kind of phenomenal. I was in Biotropica. There is no way I'll have access to this. Yeah. But anyway, we don't, it is what it is. An interesting new behavior of a snake. That's outrageous. I desperately want to know more about it. Well, if anyone has access to a video of this behavior, I mean, it seems pretty unlikely. Maybe you're in Malaysia and you can go and check it out. But um, yeah, well, we've got we've got pretty pictures. Cool. We've got pictures. So just a picture of a snake, though, isn't it? Well, it's a picture of a snake half coiled, then a picture of, of it in the air, and then a picture of it being sort of coiled on the other, presumably at the end of its cartwheeling mission. Hmm. Oh, decent. Cool. That's incredible. I hope they've given it a good name. In terms of the, I suppose cartwheeling is quite is quite appropriate and, and works. So, do they give the behavior a name? Cartwheeling behavior is what it says in the abstract. <laughs> I think that's quite good. I think that's pretty good. Or uh, full body tumble. Full body tumble. That's a bit wordy, mm. and you, you just, get yeah. abbreviated FBT. FBT. Yeah, we can yeah, do without abbreviations. I think. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think that just about ties off our uh, episode about Bushmasters. Unless you've got anything else to add, Ben? No, no, I feel like I've talked enough about stuff that I'm not directly involved in and probably speaking out of turn on, so I should probably stop. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I'd be interested to get some alternative takes on that. If anyone actually loves eponyms, get in touch and yeah, 
send us an angry voice note we'll play on the podcast so <laughs> thanks very much for listening you can get in touch herphighlights at gmail.com uh, we're on social media yeah catch you next time thanks for listening